If you've got a Bible, you can open up to Luke chapter 1. It's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, over the course of these last couple of weeks, we've been kind of looking at uh, preparing our hearts to make room for Christ in his arrival this Advent. Advent is essentially the, the four-week span that runs from the Sunday after Thanksgiving through Christmas Eve. And historically in the life of the church, Advent has been about preparing, as we sang earlier this morning together, when we sang Joy to the World, let every heart prepare him room, as opposed to letting every heart push him out. Because there's so many things in this season that if we are not intentional about preparing room for the arrival of Christ, that it will push him out and we will find ourselves on this kind of endless hamster wheel of running from party to gathering to social event week after week and day after day without really dwelling in the joy that Christ has afforded to us. And so this Advent, we've been looking at how uh, Christmas, if we rightly understand it, it's not only has sentimental value for us, it not only just warms our heart, but in reality it has sanctifying value, it changes our heart. And so what we've seen so far is we looked in John chapter 1 a couple of weeks ago, we saw that God has come to dwell with us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld his glory. Glory is the only son of the Father. So we saw that God has come to dwell with us to show us his face, the face that Moses in the Old Testament longed to see but could not, that we are able to see in Jesus Christ. He came to dwell with us, but not only did he come to dwell, but he came to deliver us. We saw last week in Zechariah's prophecy in Luke chapter 1 that what God has done in Christ has raised up a horn of salvation for us that has impaled our enemies, that has impaled Satan's sin and death, has defeated them. And so we saw that last week. He came not only to dwell, but also deliver. And this week, what we want to look at is that Jesus has not only come to dwell, and he's not only come to deliver, but he's also come to fulfill He's come to fulfill. In Luke chapter 1 is where we're going to be looking at Mary's song that she sings upon the occasion of arriving to visit her cousin Elizabeth. As I thought about songs that we sing this Christmas season, really every Christmas season, most of them have this theme of joy centered that they're centered upon. I thought of several examples. O come, O come, Emmanuel, sings, we sing, O come, thou day spring, come and cheer. Make us happy, make us joyful. Our spirits by thine advent here, your arrival would make us overwhelmed with joy. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. So we sing about that in that song. We sing, O come all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. All hail the Lord, we greet thee, born this happy, not sad, but happy morning. Or we sing the words of Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and we sing, Joyful, all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies, with angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Glory, glory to the newborn King. Or we sing, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns, let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills and plains repeat the sounding what? Joy, repeat the sounding joy. Repeat, repeat the sounding joy. It's about joy. It's about joy. The songs that we sing this Christmas season and every Christmas season are centered upon the joy that arrives in Christ. They unfold that joy as one of the central themes of Advent and dare I say one of the central themes of the Christian life. 
Because at the bottom of all of our struggle in this world, at the bottom of all of our wrestling in this world, at the bottom of all of our anguish and anxiety in this world, in fact, I feel like I could preach on joy every week and it would not be enough. (laughs) Because it's probably the central fight for every Christian is to find their joy centered upon and sourced in Jesus as opposed to other persons or other things. It's one of the central fights of the Christian life. And if no one else this morning resonates with what God has to say to us in Luke chapter 1 about our joy that we sing about this Christmas season as we prepare our hearts to make room for the arrival of this Christ, if no one else resonates with it this morning, listen, I want to tell you that I could hold this book up to my face like a mirror and it would resonate with me. These last several months have been a fight for joy in my life. It's been like a dogfight for joy in my life. And some of you know what I'm speaking of because it's been a dogfight for joy in your life as well. It seems like at every corner, at every turn, at every angle, there's something that wants to attack your joy. There's something that wants to to overthrow your joy and fill you with a sense of despair. And so you're fighting for joy and fighting for joy and fighting for joy. And sometimes it's a weary fight, isn't it? So I feel like I could speak about joy every week and it would connect and land somewhere, especially with me. And so this morning, as we take a look at this text in Luke's gospel, some of you may find yourself, you may resonate more with the psalmist in Psalm chapter four, verse seven, where he says, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and their wine abound. Some of you may be filled with joy this morning because things seemingly God is blessed and things are going well. And so, so you've, you've got more joy than whenever the crops came in and there was an abundance of grain, and there was abundance of wine, but some of you, and I've been here and Jesus was here as well. Some of you resonate more with what the psalmist says in Psalm 22 in verse 1, following where he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of you, that is where you are. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Some of you have more joy when the grain and wine abound, and some of you are going, God, where are you? Where are you? And so this morning, my hope is that for those of you whose joy, those of you whose joy doesn't seem to be there, that God would awaken it in your heart. And for those of you who have it, that God would amplify it in your heart. In Luke chapter 1, we find this story, story of Mary's song that she sings Mary gives, receives this, this word from the Lord, this angel who shows up to visit her and says, Mary, you're going to conceive. You're going to bear a child. You shall, this is what you're going to call him, Mary. Uh, and she goes, well, how can that be? I, I've never even been with a man. He says, well, the, the Lord's going to overshadow you. The Holy Spirit's going to cause you to conceive, Mary. And this child that you're going to give birth to is going to be the one. And she goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth. And whenever she shows up to visit Elizabeth, the baby in Elizabeth's tummy, that's what my kids call it, right? The tummy, it leaps for joy in Elizabeth's womb because it knows the identity of the child that is developing in Mary's womb. 
And upon Mary's arrival to visit her cousin Elizabeth, she sings this song in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and then returned to her home. Mary's song teaches us something about joy in the midst of anguish. But what is it that it teaches us? The first thing that it teaches us is this, is that true joy, lasting joy, Christian joy, transcends our circumstances and our situation. True joy transcends our situation. In other words, it means it, it doesn't, it's not contingent upon our situation. It's not sourced in our circumstances and the things that are going on around us. Notice what Mary says in verse 46 when she cries out, the, almost the very first words of this song that come off of her lips. She says, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. In God my, that God would show up to save through this child that is growing in my womb. And not just save those people out there, but save me. Notice in Mary's song, there is no hint of Mary seeing herself as immaculate or as sinless. She recognizes her own need for a savior. And she says her spirit rejoices in the fact that God has shown up to save. And there is joy that is filling Mary's heart like a raging river or like a mighty waterfall that is filling her heart in the midst of and despite her circumstances and her situation that she finds herself in in life. Now, what is the situation that Mary finds herself in that this joy is bubbling over despite it? I want you to consider the situation that she finds herself in. If you look back into verses 26 to 45 of Luke 1, here's what you're going to find. You're going to find the context out of which this song comes. And so when Mary begins to sing, she's not singing in a vacuum, right? She's not singing without some history here. But she's singing in the midst of a setting that Mary received news from the angel Gabriel that she would be with child from the Holy Spirit and that child that she would carry, that child that she would bear would be the Son of God, the promised Messiah, and that her relative Elizabeth would also give birth in her old age. And then in verse 38, you find that Mary receives this word from the angel Gabriel with faith. She believes what God has said to her. And then she travels to visit her, her cousin Elizabeth. And when she arrives, there's like this party going on in both their wombs, right? The babies are so, John is going to be the forerunner of the Christ. And he's like partying in Elizabeth's womb because he sees Jesus in Mary's belly when she shows up. There's just, there's this, you know, just crazy thing going on there in their stomachs. And that news from the angel and was confirmed whenever Mary shows up as she finds that Elizabeth is now with child as well. And these, these, these confirmations that God gives her along the way, they become 
They become the, the, the root of her joy in the midst of all human evidence to the contrary. That Mary believes that she will be blessed in the coming of this child, even though all of the circumstances around her give evidence to the contrary. Now, what is the, what, 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 why, why? What evidence to the contrary does Mary have to believe that she will be blessed in the coming of this child? There's a few things. Consider them with me. First, she was pregnant out of wedlock. She wasn't married to Joseph yet. Listen, and in her day, in her day, that was a huge issue. For her family, that was a huge issue for her. Because if you go back into the Old Testament, what you would find is that the law called for the stoning of those individuals, that they should be put to death and executed because of their sin against God. In addition, Joseph knew the child wasn't his. He's like, there's nothing that's happened between her and I. So who's it having with? Right? There's speculation rising in Joseph's mind. So he wants to put her, he doesn't want to make a big spectacle out of it, but he wants to put her away quietly. He's betrothed to her. They're not yet married, kind of like a, a, a more intense engagement process, but he wants to put her away. So the community in which she lives wants to, would want to kill her. Her, her. her betrothed would want to abandon her and leave her. But Mary rejoices in the midst of these, this situation and this circumstances because she believes that what God is doing in her, what God is doing in her would be a blessing to her and to all the nations, to the entire world. She believes that what God is doing in her, what God is doing in her would be a blessing to her and despite all the evidence to the contrary, despite the fact that the law called for her to be stoned and her her, her fiancé wants to abandon her, and her community would ostracize her and put her outside. Can you imagine the intense pressure she must have felt? And yet in the midst of that, she says, my spirit rejoices. All these circumstances and situations floating around her, and in the midst of that, there is joy welling up within her. See, some of you find yourself in that exact position this morning. Some of you, these last 12 months have been filled with anguish and pain. Some of you, these last 12 months have been filled with uncertainty. And in fact, as you look on the horizon of 2016, there's even more uncertainty there <laughs> about what your job situation will look like, about what your marital status may look like, about what your prospects would look like, about how school will go for you. And all this uncertainty and all this anguish Mary knew and understood. And in the midst of it, she says, there's joy that's welling up within me because she believed she was blessed in the coming of this child. Do you? Do you believe that in the coming of Christ, who is our hope, who is our love, who is our peace, who is our joy, that we celebrate every Advent? Do you believe that in the coming of this child, that no matter what's going on out here, that there is joy welling up from in your heart and in your soul, that you're rejoicing in God? So when you sing joy to the world, when you sing rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel has come. When you sing joyful and triumphantly, when you sing these great carols and songs of the Advent season, are they more than hollow words on your lips, but are they the expression of your heart because you know that in the coming of this child, no matter what's going on outside, 
that God has chosen to bless. True joy, true joy transcends our situations. Now, where does it come from, though? Listen, there's something that's occupying Mary's mind that's causing her heart to be flooded with this joy. What is it that's occupying her mind? I think there's at least two things here. The first one is this. Like Mary, you have to look, you have to look at God bringing something out of nothing. Like if you want to have joy in the midst of all this uncertainty and all the anguish that maybe the last 12 months have held for you and the uncertainty that the next 12 months hold for you, if you want to have joy in the midst of all of that, you've got to look at the fact that what God has done historically and he continues to do today is that he brings something out of nothing. If you look in verses 48 and 49, listen to what Mary says. She says, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. Now, what are these great things that God has done for Mary? Listen, Mary's story stands in a long line of Old Testament stories about how God has worked to bring something out of nothing. To bring hope out of despair, to bring light out of darkness, to bring something out of nothing. If you look in Genesis chapter 1, God brings something out of nothing, doesn't he? Whenever he creates the world and he speaks all things into his being by the power of his word. And then you look in addition in Genesis chapter 21, in Genesis chapter 25, in Genesis chapter 30, in Judges 13, and in 1 Samuel 1. Because Mary's story is set in a, co- a broader historical context of what God has done throughout redemptive history to carry it forward and to bless his people and to continue the lineage of his people. To bring something out of nothing. Because when you look back throughout Israel's history, what you're going to find is that whenever God makes a promise, he keeps it. But not only does he keep it, he keeps it in the most miraculous of ways. When he promises offspring to people, many times he promises these offspring to individuals who were barren and they could not conceive or bear children. And listen to what he does Over and over and over and over again. In Genesis 21, God opens the womb of the barren Sarah to conceive and bear a son through whom the promises of God to Abraham will be perpetuated and carried forward as Isaac is born. In Genesis chapter 25, God opens the womb of the barren Rebekah to conceive and bear a son through whom the promise would be continued and they would name him Jacob. In Genesis chapter 30, God opens the womb of the barren Rachel to conceive and bear a son through whom this promise and God's God's faithfulness would be seen. They name him Joseph. In Judges chapter 13, God opens the womb of Manoah's wife, who was also barren, to conceive and bear a son who would be a deliverer of God's people. His name was Samson. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, God opens the womb of the barren Hannah to conceive and bear a son that would serve as the last judge in Israel's history and one of her prophets, and his name was Samuel. Over and over and over again in the Old Testament, God opens the wombs of these barren women to conceive and bear children who would carry forward the lineage of God's promise in the most miraculous of ways against all human odds. And then you turn to Luke chapter 1. 
And God opens the womb of the barren Elizabeth to conceive and bear a son whose name would be John, who would be the forerunner of the Christ. And as one commentator on this passage in Luke's gospel said, Justo Gonzalez, he said, the sign that God has intervened in history to permit the birth of this child and all the barrenness of all these women, he says, and the child is an essential element to the continuation of the people of God. In other words, God intervenes to cause a, a birth, to be con- a child to be conceived in this womb against all, all odds to carry on the promise to carry on the promise. And then in Luke chapter one, he opens the womb of Elizabeth and he opens the womb of the one who is, who is barren par excellence, right? She's barren absolutely because she's never been with a man. She's a virgin. And he opens Mary's womb and by the Holy Spirit conceives Jesus. See, over and over and over again, God fulfills his promise by bringing something out of nothing to bring a redeemer who would save his people from their sins. Jesus, listen, Jesus is the one child to whom all these other children pointed. He's the fulfillment of this this narrative that we see throughout the Old Testament, that he would be the one to whom whom, uh, Isaac and Jacob, he would be the one to whom Samson and Samuel, they are all pointing to him as the one who would be the deliverer, as the one who would be the prophet, as the one through whom the promise would come, as the one who would stand as God's priest. They are all pointing to him. And so the fulfillment of all the promises is growing in Mary's womb. She knows that God historically has brought something out of nothing, and so there is something that's that's what's causing her to rejoice and fill with joy. But notice also, That just as God works to bring a redeemer into human history by bringing something out of nothing, so also he works to redeem people in the same manner. (laughs) This is where it gets good, right? (laughs) He works to bring redemption in your life in the same manner. Look at what Mary says in verses 51 to 53. It says, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. In other words, those whom we would think God would show favor to. And God would say, hey, you guys who are rich, you guys who are influential, you guys who are powerful, you guys who have clout and weight and carry um, some kind of prestige within the life of the community, you guys come to the front of the line, right? You guys get cutsies all the way to the front of the, of, the, of the ride at Six Flags, right? You don't have to wait in that line that trails way back here, but you guys get to come to the front and go through that little special gate. But actually what God said, what Mary says is quite the opposite, is that not only does God work to bring something out of nothing in Mary's womb to bring the, the Redeemer into the world, but he continues to work redemption in people's lives in the same manner. So that those who are mighty, those who are rich, those who are powerful, he says, he sends them away. But those who are humble and poor and hungry, he fills and receives. God doesn't take those that we would look at on the, with external appearances and say, you guys must be at the front of the line. Actually, they're at the back of the line. And those who we would send, tend to send to the back of the line, God says, come to the front. Because for God to save, he gets the glory by bringing something out of nothing. 
In fact, the one thing that one of the things this teaches us, the one thing that anyone needs to be saved, one thing that anyone needs to be delivered, the one thing that anyone needs to be redeemed is nothing. <laughs> but the sad thing is, is that's something that most people don't have. The one thing that you need is nothing. But for many, it's the one thing they don't have. So what they have is an arm full of resumes to bring before God and say, God, here's my credentials. God, here's what makes you make me acceptable, God. Here are all the things that I've done, God. Here's my resume. It's like going before the judge, right? And you get a, maybe get a speeding ticket or get a ticket for running a red light and you go before the judge. Maybe you want to contest it and fight it. And so you go into court and you've got all this documentation and you've got all the video surveillance, you know, cameras at the, at the traffic light and you've got all these things and you're going before the judge with your arms full of evidence to say, God should be declared not guilty. And that's the same way that we approach God oftentimes. The one thing that we need is nothing, but it's the one thing that so many people do not have. God receives those who know they can bring nothing to the table, and he rejects those who try to bring anything themselves. Isaac Watts, in the 1600s, a great hymn writer, he wrote this hymn called, I Boast No More. And listen to what he says. He says, no more, my God, I boast no more of all the duties I have done. I quit the hopes I held before to trust the merits of thy son. The best obedience of my hands dares not appear before thy throne, but faith can answer thy demands by pleading what my Lord has done. See, those who plead what they have done before God, that they are mighty, that they are powerful, that they are rich, that they are influential. Those that plead what they have done before God, God rejects and sends away. But those who plead what Christ has done before God, God receives and welcomes and fills. See, one of the reasons, some of you, your joy, your joy is not like a raging fire. It's not like a, 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 the, the, not like a, a, a radiant beam of sunlight that fills all the cavities and recesses of your soul. But your, your joy this Christmas is perhaps like that strand of Christmas lights that we all have in our attic that has like one bulb that still burns on it. Very dimly. Some of you, that's your joy. One of the reasons is because you've got all these things in your hands you're trying to bring to God and say, God, look at what I've done. When what you need to stand back and do is say, God, I have nothing to offer and look at what you've done. Look at what you've done. Because God brings something out of nothing. Second thing that's filling Mary's mind is this, and it's something you and I have to do as well. Not only look at the fact that God brings something out of nothing, but you gotta look, gotta remind yourself of the fact that He remembered. You gotta remind yourself of the fact that He remembered. In verses 54 to 55, Mary says that her rejoicing is rooting in the fact that God has remembered. In fact, Zechariah, last week in the text that we read together, we saw that Zechariah said that what God has done is He's acted out of His remembrance of the covenant that He made to Abraham. Both Mary and Zechariah understand that what God has done in Christ is he is fulfilling the promise that he made to Abraham centuries before. Back in Genesis chapter 12 and in Genesis chapter 15, that he's remembering his covenant with God's people. He's remembering his covenant and oath and promise and pledge that he made to Abraham. That's what God is doing in Christ. Now, what does it mean to remember, right? Most of us, when we think of remembering something, we think of remembering the fact that we need to take the trash out or remembering the fact that we need to, you know, pick up something from the store on the way home because our wife sent us a text and we don't want to make sure that we pick it up. <laughs> Listen, I know, I've been there. 
All right, and I forget most of the times. Uh, but we want to make sure we actually stop by the store and pick up what she's asked us to pick up. So we want we have this. We for most of us remembering is intellectual recall. But listen, I want you to consider something. Remembering in the scriptures is far more than intellectual recall. It's also volitional action. It's acting on something. It's doing something. Listen, when you think of remembering the covenant that you made with your spouse when you stood before family and friends, for those of you who are married in here, when you think of the fact that you want to remember, most of us think of the fact, well, if I can just remember that one day every year, like our anniversary, if I can not forget that, I can put that big bold letters on my calendar, right? And I can make sure I pick up something, some flowers or, you know, some chocolates or whatever it is that she likes or that he likes. I can remember our anniversary intellectual recall. But whenever you remember the fact that you were wed on that day, it leads you to do something, doesn't it? It's not just remembering if you remember, oh, yeah, we got married on May 19th, 2001. But that memory should compel you to do something to act in a particular way, right? Whenever you stood before family and friends, you made a vow, you took vows to honor and fulfill those vows that in poverty and riches, sickness and health, joy and sorrow at the peaks of the mountains and in the depths of the valleys, that all of your love and all of your loyalty and all of your allegiance and all of your affection would be directed towards your bride and beloved. All of it. It means that you serve them that you forgive them, that you enjoy their presence and prefer them to any and all others. That's what it is to remember, that you care for them emotionally and physically and spiritually. That's what it means to remember your vows, right? It means to remember the covenant that you entered into with them. Not just that you have this intellectual recall and it kind of goes through one ear and out the other or through one side of your mind and out the other, but rather that you act on it in particular ways or fashions. And that's exactly what Mary and Zechariah are saying God has done. But notice how they say he has done it. They don't think of God's faithfulness when they think of him remembering. They think of his mercy. Right? In both those texts, they refer to God's mercy, God acting mercifully to remember his covenant with Abraham. So in the coming of Christ, both Mary and Zechariah see God fulfilling his covenant to Abraham in a way that is incredibly merciful. The God is issuing clemency and forgiveness and withholding what we deserve. In fact, he's absorbing it himself. And in fact, that's the exact promise that God made to Abraham. If you go back into Genesis chapter 15, there's a story that most of us, when we read it, we go, man, what in the world is going on there? Because we go back and we read the story about God coming to Abraham and making this covenant with him to have offspring and land that he's going to provide for him. And yet Abraham and Sarah have been barren and they have not conceived. They have not born a child. And so God comes to make this oath and promise. And Abraham says, how in the world am I going to know, God, that you're going to fulfill this promise? How can I have land given to my offspring when I have no offspring? And so God says, okay, we're going we're, we're to ratify this thing. I'm going to make a covenant with you that you're going to know that I'm going to provide for you, that you know that I'm going to take care of you, that you know that there's going to be an offspring who comes out of you that's going to bless the entire world. And so what does God do with Abraham? He causes Abraham to fall into a deep sleep. After Abraham, after, well, at first he kills Abraham to gather all these animals. There's cows and goats and sheep and some birds. And he cuts most of them in half and he sets them on two sides of a path. Right? This is getting interesting, right? So all these animals split in two, set on different sides of this path. And then God causes Abraham to fall into a deep sleep. 
And what God does is he enacts a covenant ratification ceremony that was common in those days. Because what would happen in those days is when two kings entered into a treaty together, they would both pass through the middle of this path where these animals had been slain. And what they were saying was this, should I renege on my covenant to you, may this be done unto me. May I be slaughtered. May I be ripped in two. May this be done unto me. And so when two kings came together to enter into a, 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 a treaty or a covenant with one another, they would both pass through this line of carnage saying, may it be done unto me if we go back on our pledge and promise and oath. But notice what God does with Abram. He causes Abram to fall into a deep sleep and he sets him over on the side. And then the smoking pot shows up and it passes, the glory of God shows up and it passes through the pieces for both God and Abraham. So what is God saying by that? Here's what God is saying by that. Be it done unto me, Abraham, should I ever renege on my promise and pledge and my oath and my covenant to you. If I should ever be unfaithful to you, Abraham, may this be done unto me. But Abraham, may this be done unto me if you ever renege on your, fa on, on your faithfulness, on your promise, and on your pledge to trust me. In other words, Abraham, would I, I would absorb the consequences if I should ever abandon you, Abraham, and I will absorb the consequences if you should ever abandon me. And whenever both Zechariah and Mary think about the birth of Jesus Christ, they go, God is fulfilling his promise to Abraham and he's doing so in a way in which he's going to absorb the consequences of his people's sin and rebellion over the course of their history. He remembered his covenant and he's acting to fulfill it by the sending of his son for sin and sinners. Because in Jesus Christ, what you see is God saying to his covenant people, may it be done unto me. May, my, may I be broken. May I be ripped in two. Should you ever fail to be faithful to me? And in the coming of Christ at the cross, that's exactly what happens. God looks at all of our unfaithfulness and all of our sin and all of our rebellion, and he says... I will absorb the consequences for you. So what is it that's occupying Mary's mind that in the midst of all of the chaos and circumstances and situations of her life, that she has this joy welling up in her? The fact that God tends, as he's prone to do, take and make something out of nothing. That I have nothing to offer, I have nothing to bring I come with empty hands, not hands full of documentation and resumes and credentials, not with all my medals and my dress size, thinking that somehow my achievements and accomplishments are going to make me acceptable before God and that I look better than the other people who are around me, so I must be more acceptable and I get led to the front of the line. No, no, it actually works quite the opposite. Those who realize they have nothing to offer and nothing to bring to God, God says, come. And he says, you can come because I absorb the consequences of your sin and rebellion myself. And when those two truths 
settle deep within our hearts. There's something that's called joy that begins to bubble over. No matter the circumstances, no matter the situations, no matter who enters our life or who leaves our life, no matter what promotions we receive or demotions we receive, regardless of whether we've been laid off or fired, all these circumstances begin to recede into the background because there is this beauty of Christ and God making something out of nothing in our lives and God absorbing the consequences for our sin in himself at the cross that begins to recede into the foreground as we dwell on that. As that occupies our mind, there's a flood of joy that fills our hearts. And it leads us to do something. Notice what Mary says at the very beginning of the song. My soul magnifies the Lord. Magnifies him. Now, is Mary saying God's very small and I gotta make it like a microscope? I gotta, it's two ways to magnify something, right? Through a microscope or a telescope. A microscope takes something that's very, very small and makes it appear to be larger than it actually is. A telescope takes something that's far removed and causes it to be seen as it is. Which one is Mary talking about? She's not saying I take God who's very, very small and make him to be seen as something that he's not, but I take God who is vast and expansive and holy in all that he does, and I cause him to be seen as he is in my life because I'm rejoicing in him no matter what's happening around me. So God is seen as my treasure. God is seen as the, most, the person of most infinite worth and value in my life. And as he is, he's being magnified through me. And the world sees that no matter what's going on out here, there is something that's filling me in here because I'm occupying my mind with these truths. And that's my hope and my prayer for us this Christmas season. Because if you see that he came to fulfill his promise, and you see that he came to absorb the consequences for your sin. No matter what anyone says or else anyone does out here, there will be joy welling up in your soul. And Christ will be seen in his glory through your life. Let's pray that he would. Father, we come today recognizing that we have nothing to offer, nothing to bring to the table, God. That if it were up to us, Father, that the table would be empty because we have really nothing to bring to you. And you have everything to bring to us. Father, I pray that as you have been prone to do throughout history, God, that in the lives of individuals in this room this morning, the life of this church, God, that you would take and bring something out of nothing. God, like Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, not many of us were wise, not many of us were powerful, not many of us were influential when we came to faith in Jesus. But you are prone to take those who are not wise, who are not powerful, who are not influential in the eyes of the world and exalt them and take those who are wise and powerful and influential in the world, eyes of the world and humble them. 
So God, through this small church, may you do that. May you continue to take and make something out of nothing in our lives. And God, may you help us to continue to dwell on the fact that Christ has come to fulfill the covenant God made with Abraham, that there will be an offspring through whom the whole world will be blessed and that he will be the one who will absorb the consequences for our sin and rebellion. And God, as we dwell on those truths, would you awaken a joy that is unassailable in our lives that we might magnify Christ and Christ alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.